Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Good morning. Uh, I'm Nivad from White Oak Medical Center at the University of Maryland. And today we have uh, an expert panel uh, here that's going to discuss the importance of uh, atrial fibrillation in decision-making in uh, structural heart disease and coronary artery, artery disease. Uh, let's first uh, introduce the panel. We'll start with Joanna. Uh, so my name is Joe Chikwi. I'm at Cedars sinai in Los Angeles. I'm Vinod Tharani, cardiac surgeon at Piedmont Heart Institute in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Mark Gertish at Franciscan Heart Center in Indianapolis. So uh, we had a couple of very exciting days, and yesterday we had a very interesting uh, session on uh, TAVAR in general and the uh, quality of the trials that uh, uh, were done and uh, what they contribute to us. But, uh, you know, when it comes to aortic stenosis um, and the patient do have an established AFib, let's say persistent and long-standing persistent, what do you think in the heart team environment, uh, what should we talk about when we make a decision whether patients should have uh, SAVAR or TAVAR and what type of intervention for that fibrillation? Appendage only, maze procedure, anything in between? So I think that's a great question, um, Niv, and we've been talking about this more and more for the last, I think, one to two years. And I think if we break the patients down into high-risk or extreme-risk patients, I think a lot of those patients are going to transcatheter valve therapies, and we're just dealing with their atrial fibrillation with anticoagulants or some type of medication. So they're not being treated terribly well with open surgery because a lot of those are going straight to transcatheter valve therapies. Now, as we get into intermediate risk and lower risk patients, I think that conversation is becoming more prevalent and uh, more robust, um, especially in the low risk patients. As you know, in 2019, low risk patients were approved for FDA trilethal valve uh, patients. I think what becomes important is if you have a 65 year old, 66 year old who has atrial fibrillation, now in the heart team, we actually discuss with them transcatheter valve therapies versus having atrial fibrillation, maze operations at the same time as aortic valve replacement. So that conversation is, is really um, taking place. Unfortunately, all four of us know this, there's no good data on it. There are no randomized trials. We all know that having atrial fibrillation continued for years actually decreases your survivability. So I think that discussion should become more robust. It should become more heart team oriented patients should really be informed of the good things and the bad things about having atrial fibrillation. And I think that potentially I'd love to see a randomized trial. I've been talking to the companies about doing a randomized trial in this Saver Taver versus, you know, Saver plus Maze versus Taver and either a Watchman or something like that. So wide open field, really, really um, interesting for me to think about. I completely agree. And yesterday we had a paper from uh, uh, Northwestern that was presented 
And it was shown that even if the patient is getting to surgery, according to the STS database, and this is recent, 2014-2017, only 30% of them are getting treated at the time of surgery for any AF ablation, let alone you know, ablation that is uh, designed to address the type of atrial fibrillation. So what do you think about penetration of surgery when the patient do come to surgery? Is it important? Why surgeons are not doing it? So I think how Vino's outlined the knowledge gaps is really on point. And the randomized trials that have already been conducted in the Savatav arena certainly give you a platform of data that you could amalgate and query that could probably inform the design of a prospective study to look at how you just make decisions in these patients. In terms of the practice variation, it's huge. When we look at registries, we can see a huge variation. It's very notable in the mitral space. Um, it's also in the aortic space that the patients that come with paroxysmal permanent atrial fibrillation for surgery, depending on the surgeon, have got either a very minimal or a very high chance of getting a concomitant ablation procedure, plus or minus an early closure. So there's clearly a lack of knowledge and a lack of consensus, and we need better data to inform our practice. I suspect that one of the drivers in practice is that it's very difficult to do a maze procedure through a right anterior minifilocotomy or a right and upper hemistenotomy. And that's what surgeons are increasingly being driven to offer as a sort of way of offering a patient a minimally invasive surgical procedure to compete with TAVA. So I think um, advocating very, very strongly for an aggressive approach to atrial fibrillation treatment is key. It's relatively easy to close the atrial appendage, and I think um, the use of and the dissemination of devices has really hopefully improved our uh, ability to do that minimally invasively. Wouldn't you also say, wouldn't you also say, Joanne, that it's not for concomitant procedures, not only is AFib, um, the idea of doing anything is is heterogeneous, but also the type, what you would do, would you open the left atrium and do a left-sided maze versus just doing a pulmonary vein isolation? I have people who do, for persistent, do a left pulmonary vein isolation, they say, great, I've done your maze. We all know that that's really not yeah. very beneficial to them. I, I think this is a, a valid point that requires, you know, another maybe roundtable discussion just on that, that surgeons tend to package AFib as one entity. And as you alluded to, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's different. And this is why the variability is not only in the penetration <coughs> of actually doing a procedure, but also on what you do. And, and then going back to that STS paper from yesterday, so 70% of the patient never treated with an ablation, 30% were treated with an ablation. But when you look also at the other low-hanging fruit, which is almost a no-brainer, only 58% of the patient that had the ablation had their appendage excluded or, or excised, and only 16%, one-sixth of the patient that didn't have treatment had their appendage treated. Mark, what do you think about it? Well, first, I, I have to go back to what we do know as far as data goes, because people talk about, okay, we're going to do a randomized control study comparing AVR, TAVR, AVR with a maze or some type of AFib therapy. What we do know is that when we look at the TAVR populations, this has been published, that 
the patients who have either new onset AFib or pre-existing AFib don't do as well as the patients who didn't have AFib before their TAVR. And the focus was on the new onset AFib because it was fairly dramatic, and maybe that's because we uncover AFib that existed before. But the point is that AFib was a negative prognostic factor for how long they would live. And we know in the surgical data that if a person has their AFib addressed, or if in, let's look at large population numbers, if people have their AFib addressed at the time of surgery, they're more likely to be alive soon and late after surgery. And then in focus centers of excellence, we see over and over again that the addition to intervention for their atrial fibrillation leads to better survival and outcomes. So we actually know that, and the likelihood that we're gonna get a randomized control study to, to ferret this stuff out is pretty unlikely. And when we talk about you know, minimally invasive, yes, we all do minimally invasive surgery, but to, to think that we're gonna get the whole nation to do minimally invasive surgery when we can't get them to actually even do a fib intervention, I think is a pretty dramatic idea. Like you said, patients who have atrial fibrillation that's going untreated in the operating room, only a small percentage of those even have their appendage closed. And we know the appendage is the primary mechanism for their, for stroke. So it's, uh, you know, it starts with education, the, the people being trained and finished, only about 70% or more than 70% feel they can't do AFib surgery when they yeah. finish. And then it moves on to kind of complacency and motivation and how do we get people to look at this as a disorder that we treat over time, which surgeons don't really uh, invest themselves in for long-term care. Yeah. But you know, uh, Mark, to that point, though, how do, I mean, we continue at all the national meetings. We have separate AFib meetings. You know, how do we get people to do this more? I mean, is it, you know, we publish on it. I mean, uh, what, 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 what is the way for us to teach people to do more? I, I'm still struggling with that because we talk a lot about it. We all know, that, and we've seen data, not always randomized data, but we've seen data showing the benefit of doing something. How, how do we how do we get past that hurdle? Because I'm I'm struggling with that, and I'm curious in what yeah. you guys think. I, I think uh, just to answer you, and then I think quickly. I, I think this is an excellent point, and there is education piece, but it's also the way we look at results, and it's going to be maybe a nice transition to the next topic uh, in a moment for cabbage. So, if we go to the operating room today and do a cabbage without a lima it's being basically reported as a non, un, the quality of the procedure is less good. We need to work in a sense that the quality of the surgery should be defined. If you have cabbage and, and aortic stenosis, if you didn't address the appendage and you didn't address the AFib, and I'm not talking what to do because this is an open argument which will never metrics. end. Put it in metrics. We put it in metrics. And I think this way we are going to elevate the awareness and also maybe um, uh, push push a surgeon into doing the reasonable things. We are not asking not to do reasonable things. If you cannot do the appendix, say why you didn't do it. So we just had the exact same discussion in the coronary arena. How do we increase utilization of a multi-arterial strategy when there's a real emerging consensus is beneficial and yet may be used in less than 10% of appropriate patients in the U.S. with huge practice variation by individual surgeons from 0 to about 100%. It's a three-pronged approach, and it's the same with mitral repair, trying to improve repair rates. You have to educate. If surgeons are graduating without facility and understanding of the benefits, then they will it be very difficult to help them apply that in practice. Two, you have to educate your cardiology colleagues because referral practices drive cardiac surgical practices. If you're getting patients because you're doing a multi-arterial vascularization, that increases the chances that you're going to do it more appropriately. And then thirdly, it's exactly what you say. It's how we use our metrics to drive better practice and greater quality. Yeah, I completely agree. So, so 
So let's talk about a little bit about coronary bypass surgery and, and AFib. You know, the, the, the stunning data is, which is really for us, I think it's not so stunning, that most of the patients with AFib that we see in our lifetime are actually cabbage patients. Because 6 to 8%, according to the STS database, are patients with history of atrial fibrillation coming to cabbage. That's the majority of the patient, still. And yet, if you look at different databases, the penetration of surgical ablation for atrial fibrillation is anywhere between 15 to 30%. Depends which database you look at. Same grim situation as we have with aortic stenosis. So let me just throw into there like a very provocative topic. And, and so when we look into a patient, what is more important, total arterial revascularization or cabbage and AFib surgery when we look at 10-year survival based on the data we have today? I'm glad Joanne's going to answer this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we, we all know there's no multiple um, randomized controlled trial that shows a benefit with arterial grafts. Registries show probably con confirmatory bias, but you know the survival difference is there. It's um, the arguable. Well, for multi-arterial revascularization, it's sort of of the order of 17 versus 20% absolute, so 3% survival difference at about 10 years. And obviously, it's much more profound for atrial fibrillation. Um, atrial fibrillation really decreases your life expectancy is why we're here talking about it. So I think that's a very fascinating uh, perspective that you're bringing to the discussion. What, where should we be focusing? I would argue it is not about picking one. It is about the quality of what we do as cardiac exactly. surgeons. It is about delivering a tailored, individualized approach that's appropriate for the patient in front of you. And that may involve a multi-arterial strategy and it may involve um, correcting atrial fibrillation. and. Um, it may involve a considered approach to other structural issues and the management of the patient, um, but it's excellence and quality. It's not one or the other. I, agree. I, would, I would even posit something more controversial, which is, indeed, we would like to see everyone doing a lot of wall arterial revascularization. We'll hopefully see some progress in that. The likelihood that we're going to see a major conversion, I think, is relatively small, to be honest. But... Uh, if we were to look at coronary bypass surgery and we were to leave out the circumflex distribution, in other words, ignore it in the operation, uh, versus adding a surgical complete maze procedure, the, clearly, in my mind at least, remains to be proven, but clearly there would be more benefit in eliminating the atrial fibrillation, treating the atrial fibrillation, than ignoring the circumflex distribution. And, uh, you know, we talk about Lima at LAD, you know, we all adopted that because it was, it was a kind of an easy thing to do that we knew had huge impact. When you move over to all arterial revascularization, when you move over to aggressive AFib therapy, it becomes less easy and more complicated for, these people, for people performing the surgeries. So it, it's a matter of facility versus adoption, and uh, that is the challenge that we face. So, you know, and Niv, you know the data, you and Mark know the data on cabbage and, and AFib extremely well. Why not do a randomized trial? If, if, if we're having problems convincing everybody, right, um, one of the reasons, let's be honest, that TAVR has taken over in the last 10 years, we've done seven randomized trials with 8,000 patients have been randomized. And because of true randomized trials, you can criticize the randomized trials, uh, 
little nuances here and there. Let's just be honest. Nowhere else before have we done 8,000 patients in randomized trials, prospectively followed for five years, and now we have completely changed the pathway of how we treat aortic stenosis. I think that it becomes incumbent on us if, if we're going to show prospective match or a retrospective single center areas. I think it's incumbent if we're this passionate about it, we need to do randomized trials to prove this, follow these patients for five years, and get something really on paper that will change it. That, I think, is the way we change it. As surgeons, we haven't been great about randomized trials. I think we have to push ourselves into that pathway. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, but there are a few challenges. And one of the challenges we have in general in, in cardiac surgery randomized trial is that, you know, without being too politically correct, is the lack of interest from the industry to invest in cardiac yeah. surgery. So who is going to yeah. pay for those trials? I, think I don't disagree. Are, I don't yeah. disagree with that yeah. at all, and that's not politically incorrect. Yeah. I, I think yeah. you're absolutely st yeah. uh, spot on for that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think. So I think. I think that's the biggest challenge we have. The second challenge we have is, you know, I, I the the ones that listen to me talking and Mark about this topic quite often in the past few years, looking at atrial fibrillation as a, a surgery as a singular outcome is wrong. It's it's a multifaceted outcome with drug usage, uh, anticoagulation, especially in the elderly, thromboembolic events, quality of life, and longevity. And so the design of such a trial is going to be awfully, awfully complex, and the number of patients that we will need is going to be significant. So I think, I think, I think we need to move towards it. I mean, uh, and I agree with you about your statement about the aortic stenosis. I mean, this is actually what we learned from those trials is is amazing. I mean, it's it's something we never learned about the quality of the surgery, which is great, as as the new technology, which is a very uh, huge. I mean, it's a significant change to us. So I think we need to go there and 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 try to explore it with some interest bodies. No, absolutely. It may be different adaptive type of trial designs, yeah. but we need to start thinking about yeah. how do we move that. We're all talking about how do we move the needle. Yeah. And the only way that I've found in the last 15 years to move needles is to do really good science and less res uh, retrospective, well, sometimes biased trials from single institutions. No, I completely agree. So the CTS um, Trials Network is a phenomenal platform for exactly that kind of study. I think they're midway through enrolling a atrial fibrillation trial in um, the, oh, the mitral exactly yeah. area. And again, I, I think you've absolutely underlined the need for more robust data to Completely. really inform our practice. Yeah, we have a few more minutes, and I want to kind of uh, shift the focus or shift the focus on something that's technically easy and almost a no-brainer, and that's the management of the atrial appendage. You know, everybody's talking about the watchman, about the emulate, but the device that is being used the most by huge margin is the atrial clip, and uh, it's a, it's a commercial name, but it's a clip that's being applied, different different designs, but same concept. And Mark is involved in some uh, degree in, in, in a way of, of prophylaxis, even uh, clip placement in a, in a randomized uh, control trial. And um, I would like just a um, couple of points about the clip. First, maybe Mark will tell us what's been done and where the data is right now. And then talk a little bit about um, the cost and the reimbursement of the clip, which is a huge challenge for most of us, if not all of us. Uh, <clears throat> so sure that, <clears throat> sorry. 
Those are great points. And um, indeed, so many patients who have atrial fibrillation aren't having their appendage managed, let alone the notion of obviously prophylactic management of the appendage. But uh, we did do uh, an early primary study, two to one randomization and prophylactic use of the CLIP, uh, two year follow-up showing um, a statistically significant lower incidence of thromboembolic events for those patients in whom we closed the appendage prophylactically. In other words, they didn't have a history of atrial fibrillation. If you look at Framingham data, we know that people who have cardiovascular disease, 50% of them are going to develop atrial fibrillation in their life. Everybody we operate on has cardiovascular disease. All of those patients are at risk for it. And then we also recognize that people who have heart surgery have a higher incidence of perioperative, and that extends out for months after the procedure. And I would even say that when we saw the Danish data that said that we should anticoagulate everybody who has an aortic valve replacement with a tissue valve, I would say that maybe the, the signal there wasn't related to the valve, but was related to perioperative atrial fibrillation, which has clearly has some incidence of stroke related to the atrial fibrillation that goes on beyond the hospitalization. So we also are in the process now of extending that two to one randomization to a larger study. And meanwhile, we have in our own center um, several hundred patients who've had prophylactic clips and we're in the process of completing that prospective evaluation of the data to, that will have something to offer. But it's, the device is so fast and easy to apply. The, the risks related to it are extremely small. People are concerned about uh, inflammation, fibrosis around the clip. And having reoperated people who've had the clip, it is very fibrotic in there. But we have no data to support, or no one has, has offered data to support that it compromises grafts, or there's, there's other complications related to that. Uh, so the expense is the expense. And uh, you know, relative to anything else that closes an appendage, it's extremely inexpensive, except for suture. But we can't close the appendage well with suture. We've shown that already. So I, I would take a slight issue with that. Um, I think the device is phenomenal. It's very easy to apply. And if it increases the rate of appendage closure in patients, generally fantastic. At Cedar sinai we do 95% of our mitrals robotically, mini thoracotomy. And we obviously don't use a clip in that scenario. We routinely close every single atrial appendage with a double um, layer of uh, suture line and my bias if I'm doing a coronary is I excise that appendage and I oversew it and that isn't going to reopen. So I think it's true if you excise it at the base and sew it shut. As you know in the Laos studies repeatedly it's been demonstrated that surgeons don't do a great job of closing the appendage. I think that you're absolutely right and a purse string single layer closure is not the way to close the appendage. Yeah or a running suture from the inside. And the only way, way we would prove that would be to do CT angiography on those patients and do a comparative study. We always think that we do things so well, but if we take a really close look, sometimes we find that there's a failure. And going through the transverse sinus with a clip is a very easy thing to do robotically or through a minimally invasive incision, which is what we do for all our mini. So, so I'm enjoying this joint. I'm going to give it back to you. Keep going. <laughs> so, Nim and I are so, enjoying this interaction. So, so I, I just, you know, um, we changed our practice from, from for the right mini thoracotomy, and we published, and it was based on actually testing our own results. So. We are all excellent surgeons until we really look into our results and see that they are excellent, but not as good as we I thought. I think that's a great challenge, and you've just yeah. given me a wonderful idea for a yeah. study. So, so thank you. Six, <laughs> six months after surgery, when we tested our two layers closure, we had about 6% recanalization. And this prompted me to start the transverse sinus approach with the CLIP, which is our the, now with, with many patients and disseminated worldwide now, and I think that's a really valid, easy option for minimally invasive mitral valve procedure. The cost is outstanding, and that's the problem. That's where I am having 
huge issue with the technique. I, I'm, I'm, I've also have given away on the sutures, and I've gone straight to the clip too. So I have made that change over the last five to seven years, yeah. and the cost is the cost. Just I agree with Martin. So one last thing I would comment on the, on the, the notion of cost. First of all, we know that there are other practices in cardiovascular disease management that spend a lot more money than we do on a, any given procedure. But just setting that aside, when we move toward minimally invasive and faster, more efficient operations, we also find ourselves sending everybody home instead of to an extended care facility. And there are thousands and thousands of dollars that we save by doing so. So if it fits in the context of minimizing trauma, providing a uh, more comfortable, more rapid recovery, and avoiding $15,000 in post-acute care, that translates into a win for the patients and for us. But, but Mark, let, let's just be careful there. Just because you clip somebody's left atrial pinch doesn't mean that they're not going to go to home health now. Let's just be, or, or an LTAC. Let's just be honest. It minimally invasive surgery easier. That, and right. that would be my right. point. Yeah, right. it's much, much easier. It saves time and so on and so forth. Sure. So, unfortunately, we are uh, kind of at, at the edge of our time limit. Um, I'm sure you all got the sense that uh, there is uh, more to discuss and more study to does studies to design, but the take-home message is that the appendage is important. Whether you believe in atrial fibrillation, ablation or not, uh, it's an easy way to do it and uh, it's there, so why won't you do it? And for the other questions, we need to keep working on good design, large trials with long-term follow-up so we can have more information. Thank you all for coming, and uh, see you next time. Thank you for listening to CTS net to go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.